welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. This is at the start of a, a new, uh, just a, a teaching series for about five weeks uh, we're finding today that's called uh, Bible and Culture. Um, it's not that interesting a title, but it kind of says what it will hopefully do. Um, I want to just uh, explain where, where this kind of five-week block uh, came from uh, to give a bit of context before we, we dive in. Um, the, it was a number of months ago, maybe six, seven months ago, I, I sent a, a, a survey monkey thing, as I do, to a bunch of folk in, in this community, just a whole range of things. What, what should we teach on? What should we think about? What should we talk about in Sundays? What's helpful? Um, I don't want to just sit here in a a room uh, far away and, and, you know, come up with my best ideas and see what happens. And it was really interesting. It wasn't a massive sample size in case you're sitting there going, I never got the email. Next time you might, who knows? But um, what was interesting as uh, we, as I just saw the, the answers in my technical survey, uh, one of the issues that came, well, a couple of things came up really quite high up. And one was just the, just the Bible, how to, how to read it, like literally just what to do with that. And then the other one was uh, issues to do with relationship sexuality, uh, and within that as well, conversations around the LGBT conversation. And I thought, that's interesting. There's lots of interesting things going on in there that many of you will be aware of. And, uh, and typically, my preference is normally just to, to go through the Bible, maybe a book of the Bible. Sometimes it's topical. Um, this time, I felt like it might be helpful just to take a, a somewhat topical approach to uh, the issues of, of Bible and culture, lots of different issues, but some of the ones I mentioned. Uh, but it really came about out of a sense of actually, okay, what's helpful for us as a community here? Not necessarily what's going on in, in the world per se, but actually start with where we're at here uh, and, and we'll take it from there. So who knows if it did a, a larger sample size, might a different answer, but here we are. And uh, I want to... Uh, I, 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 I want to explore uh, this, these topics together around the idea of, of Bible and culture. And, of course, in the text that we've just heard read from Second Timothy, um, you'll have picked up that, just that sense around itching ears. There's definitely something of a, of a, of a tendency for all of us, I think, just to, to hear what we want to hear, it's very easy to do that on so many things. And uh, in some ways, the reason why we're talking like this Bible and culture is to say, look, there's lots of issues. Take, take your pick of like, what are the hot topics out there. And there's lots of opinions. And we want to listen to those. But actually, as we approach it, like we're wrestling from the point of view of Christians who follow Jesus and we find him in the Bible and so it's not just my opinion or what your opinion is. We'll listen to those. But we're coming from that unique uh, perspective as a community of faith. And so we, we, we want to start and we'll start to ask that question. Well, what does it mean? What, what is the Bible? 
Um, there was a time in, in church history where there was, uh, there was a, a movement coming that was terrifying the church. The church is probably the most disruptive time in centuries uh, that the church had, had ever felt. And there was a, a great fear among the church in Britain of this, this thing coming towards us from Germany. And you might ask, well, what, was, what, what did they fear? And the answer, I think, would tell you, as you go back to Reformation time, was they feared the Bible. <laughs> the Reformation's dangerous idea, that time when Protestants uh, started to birth this, this movement, was, but up until a particular point in time, the, the Bible had been somewhat locked down and suppressed because only the experts knew it. Worship was in Latin. Nobody could understand it. Not even, not even the ministers. I, I believe some ministers couldn't even sort of guide their way. Where, where are the Ten Commandments? They, they struggled to know. It, it was at that sort of stage. And so the Reformation, they call it the dangerous idea, was the idea that the, the Bible would be uh, let loose, <laughs> put in the hands of ordinary people, and, and, and what's going to happen when people start to read the Bible for themselves? And they were, the church was terrified of that. You might think, sitting here now with all our apps and devotional, you know, a problem is we can't get people to read the Bible. It is somewhat ironic that actually the fear then was actually what's going to happen when we loosen the grip and start to say, go read the Bible for yourself. And, and, and so this is the Reformation's uh, dangerous idea, and it, as you may know some of what that was about, but it created a lot of upheaval in the church, and it's why we have the, the, the sort of different streams, if you like, of the Roman Catholicism and the sort of Protestant streams of church. It's, so it's an interesting book. It's, it's a bestseller, you know, it might still be one of the all-time greatest sellers. Royalty are kind of, you know, their, their presidents are all kind of sworn in, and, and their, their reign begins with, often with a reference to the Bible. It, it's one of these books. It's, it's endured for a long, long time. And, and this, this morning, all we're really wanting to do is to begin this discussion and to start to provoke some questions and to start to get our minds in gear and think, right, what, what do we do with this? And so we've got, uh, we're going to be modest in terms of our, our goals, what we're going to achieve uh, this morning. Um, there's a, a, four questions. I want to start with the question, which might seem a bit like, duh, but let's, let's, go, let's go with that anyway. Uh, and the question, or I, I should be on this, by the way. Can I get it on the, sc the TV screen as well? Because I'm going to follow... Um, the slides as well. Rebecca's just had that fear of like, oh my goodness. So the first question, uh, that when my clicker also starts to work and then um, the world's going to all be a happier place, is this question is, what is it? What, what is this thing uh, called the Bible? And the Bible is, well, the Bible, right? It's, I think it's from an Anglo-Latin uh, word, um, biblia, and maybe a Greek word thrown there too, biblion, and it, it, it's a word that kind of says it's about books or book. Um, it's 66 books, 66 um, different books. We're not going to test you on them, do you know? Remember, I, you know, this sort of right, go name all the New Testament books, go, you get a, a, a chomp if you get it right, and we're not going to do that because we don't have any chomps, uh, which is gutting. 
uh, just to sow that seed in your, you know, now, now everybody's wanting a chomp. I want a chomp. I'm a chomp. Anyway, um, so there's 66 books. There's at least 40 authors, and we'll not go into why I say at least, but there's at least 40 authors of these 66 books. There's three original languages. So we've got the Hebrew, Aramaic, and we've got the Koine Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in. So the, the Koine Greek is the sort of everyday uh, Greek of the Mediterranean world, the ordinary uh, version, if you like, of the Greek language. So, so we have three original languages um, that make up uh, the original uh, manuscripts. And, but we also have the, the Vulgate, which is the, the fourth century, um, carved out by, largely by a guy called Jerome, which is the Latin version of the Bible and uh, is, a, is a significant um, text that the uh, Roman Catholicism would take its uh, point of departure from. It is based on the Latin version of the Vulgate. Uh, the other, one of the most important early versions of manus manuscripts is the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old uh, Testament. And so many of the, I don't know if you've heard of the, first uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are early, some of the earliest scrolls we have from the first century. A lot of those were the Septuagint, which was this, these Greek translations uh, of the Old Testament, and then therefore after that, the whole Bible. And you'll see that if you ever read in technical books, you'll see it. Um, the LXX, which th that word comes about because it, there was 70 people who, who went to town on basically translating the Hebrew and the Aramaic into Greek. I think it was actually 72 people, but they rounded down on 70, and then we got this word, the Septuagint, which is fascinating. I know and some of you are like, well, glad I came to church this morning, but you know, hey, it helps. And of course, we have the two main testaments, which is from the Latin word meaning of a, a covenant, which means agreements. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament, the old agreement and the new agreement, or the old covenant and the new covenant. And so what is this book, the Bible? What is it? The first answer I think we have to give in some ways is, is a very human book. It's got a whole bunch of different things going on with it, different genres, it's a library of books written by lots of different people and captioned so many different ideas. And I, I still remember one of my, my first uh, method in theology classes and my, the, the professor ruled, he, he, he came into the class like this with his big pile of books and what, one, of, one of which was the yellow pages. And of course I couldn't find the yellow pages to bring this one. And of course some of you would be like, no idea what a yellow pages actually is. Um, but anyway, for those of you who know what yellow pages, he had a yellow pages, but, and he, so he set a whole bunch of, so I've got like what, uh, Jamie's cookbook, okay, I know there's more hipster versions out these days, but hey, that's what I had, uh, uh, self-help book, The Energy Plan, Claire and I are looking for more energy, I got a Bible, I got a dictionary, do you know, uh, how we'd read that, and, and I've got a, what is it, it's an instruction manual of uh, a clock, and um, it's, so, and, and he, so he had an equivalent of that, and his point was, so we read those differently, right? You're not going to go to the yellow pages and start reading it like it's, you know, some sort of novel. You're not going to go to a poetry book and, and refer to it as some sort of how-to manual. You're not going to go to 
uh, a, a, a law book and start to think it's just narrative and story. And it, it's just that symbolic thing. You just can still remember the moment of going, oh, that's a great point. I wish I thought of that myself. And it, it's just to, to bring that point to our, our, our imaginations and remember, when we say what is the Bible, we're saying on one level, the answer is it's a very human book made up of lots of different stories and books and written by lots of different authors. But however, we do not just refer to the Bible as the Bible. And for us, we will also refer to the Bible as Holy Scripture. And Second Timothy referred to that in the text that we heard read at the start, the idea that it's, it's not just like another book in the library or a library of books that we, we pick up anywhere. No, this is something more than that. This is Holy Scripture. And indeed, Second Timothy speaks of someone else who has authored this book or co-authored the book, uh, just captured in those five words, all scripture is God-breathed. And inspiration, which we sometimes think of inspiration as, oh, that was interesting, that was an inspiring you know, sunset or something like that. Inspiration is not really thought like that in the way Christian theologians talk of the Bible. It's, it's this idea of God breathing out. It's the, the words proceed from God. And if you like, it's being guided. It's, it's the doctrine of providence that God is over, like guiding and overseeing and, be, and directing by the Holy Spirit. And so the bigger idea here is that it's not, it's okay, it's a human book written by all these different people, but this idea of inspiration also says that it's actually God breathed, ordained, that God overseen by his Holy Spirit the authorship of this book and how it is received by a people, a particular people. And this idea of, of inspiration is, is probably not even as important as the idea of the revelation of God, God's revelation, because his revelation of himself is through particular times and particular acts and particular people. God's revelation, it's not about, right, you could, your mind could go off to, right, how does that inspiration, how does that process work? But actually, the first thing that's true about the Bible is that it's a revelation of God acting in history in particular ways with particular people and how they've received that. And so Holy Scripture is to say it's more than, for now, and we'll just hold on to that thought, it's just more than just a human book. As Holy Scriptures, for the people who have received it, they have discovered that it is divine. It is co-authored by God. And... This idea, which we'll start to explore, is, is the, the revelation idea is both confrontational and comforting, I, I think. The confrontational bit of the, this idea of revelation is God can't just be figured out by our minds. Now, in the modern Western mind, that, that's a pretty that's an insult, right? Because you know, the, the mind is king, and you're like, and if, is rationality is everything, and actually, there's something confronting us in this book said, look, you can pick it up, you can read it, you can understand Hebrew, Greek, but still, you cannot understand who God actually is 100% unless it has been revealed to you. And you might think to yourself, I wish God would reveal himself, and the Bible's answer is he has, in particular ways, with particular people, and particular times. But it's also comforting because God's action in history caught up in the Bible is an indication that he wants to be found. <laughs> it's his giving away of himself. And so on the one hand, we're like, 
God's revelation is, is beyond what we can just fathom in our minds and find our way to God. But the comfort in the scriptures is actually, it's the very testimony that God has acted in history with particular people and wants to be known and wants to reveal himself. And so, what is the Bible? First answer, it's a very human book with lots of different things going on in the yellow pages and everything. And another answer is to actually, this is a book that has been co-authored by God. It's Holy Scripture. Which leads us, maybe naturally, um, to, uh, to another question just to, to get at for a moment. Is, is well, can, can, we, can we trust this thing? You know, it's been a long time since it's written and a lot of people have had their hands on it and, you know, like, can we, can we actually trust on a sort of documentation level that actually it's, you know, authentic, believable, um, and, and, and questions like that? And I would then point you to the, there's a science which, let's call it textual criticism. Now, textual criticism is basically the science of a comparison of number of copies we have today uh, of, of, of old documents and also the time frame between the earliest copies that we have and the time of the original writing. And textual criticism um, exists in that world to try and say, are these authentic? Are they uh, reliable? And it's all based around how many copies we have today of the original and the time of the copies that we have versus when they were originally written. And so you can imagine if there's a massive gap between them, then the, the, the documents that we have and when they're actually written, or if we don't have very many copies of them today, then the textual criticism would lose confidence that these things are reliable. Now, that being said, there's people, experts, who can split this out way better than I could. Um, and there, there's some of these stats you'll find, I'll put up, uh, just now, just to, to give you an, an idea of where the Bible stacks up. So the number of copies in existence. Some of these writings that you'll find are what you see in universities and in schools taught in the classics as just taken as fact. And you'll see in that first slide um, that Herodotus, a Greek historian, number of copies that we have in existence are eight. Um, the writing of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars uh, is ten. Um, Aristotle's Ethics, Homer's Iliad, that's not Homer Simpson, by the way, just in case you're thinking this, you know, oh, Homer. Um, you, you, I, I actually can't read that number, so 643, and then we come to the Bible, the number of copies in existence today that we have, and we have this figure of 20,000, and so from the textual criticism point of view, that goes like, oh, Right, gee, that's, that's a whole bunch of reliable information that we can have that proves it, the, the authenticity of the writings. Now, how you interpret that still is up for grabs. But on a sheer sort of textual criticism point of view, there's reason to be confident. Next one is, again, this idea of the years between uh, writing and the earliest manuscript. Um, you'll start to see there's actually a, quite a large gap in time between the time of writing and the manuscripts that we currently have today. But actually, in the Bible, we have ones that are written so close, and manuscripts that are written so close to the actual original time, which again just makes, isn't a slam dunk and great, we've proved there's a God. That's not the argument you're making, but we're just saying on a textual basis, um, there is a, 
a grounding to say, actually, this, uh, if, if we're to take this seriously as a piece of literature, um, there is a lot of confidence that we have because of um, what, we, what we now know about um, ancient documents. And so you can sit in your classics class and just be like, right, I've got something here. Because there's, um, there's evidence that really uh, points in us in the right direction. So it's not a complete answer. There's lots of really helpful stuff out there. But it starts to take us down that route of saying, actually, hold on a minute. There's something in this that we can trust. The next question is this question. It's like, like, why are there so many uh, different versions of the Bible? And some of us, and I'm not talking about like calf skin, goat skin, you know, like there's that too, which is just, I don't know what that is. That's something else. But there, there's a whole range of, um, of different inter- uh, translations of the Bible. Um, some try to be very word for word and um, what we say literal, and some more thought for thought and still literal, and others are more concerned about meaning getting lost between the different time periods and do more work to help the modern reader who might not grasp the original uh, meaning if you just translated it literally. Um, and so you'll see, you'll see a maybe shorthand up there for your favorite version of where it fits on the sort of some more, they'll take word for word literal and some more thought for thought and some more for uh, the idea of translation. Now, we, they are all, in, there's decision-making going on, interpretation and translation work going on in all of them. There's no such thing as a pure literal uh, translation, but there's, it's about bias and emphasis. So, for example, it, just to, to, like, to get into the realms of the decisions they have to make, and if you're a translator here this morning, you do languages, you'll know yourself that if I translated this French word into English, something could just get immediately lost. If you just do it literally, that word means this, and we won't get the understanding of a sentence. And so the word, is, as an example, the word for hand in Hebrew, if you're to, to put a brace on your hand, it, it, it gets, if you just translate that word hand directly into English, from the Hebrew into English, you get slightly confused because when you think of hand, well, at least I do, when you think of hand, you think of your palm of your hand, you, what you look at here. But the Hebrew idea of hand is, is covers from the elbow to the fingertips. So you, you realize the problem you have, you're hanging something in your hand or, or, or a bracelet on your your, your, your forearm. And so the Hebrew language has two further words that subdivide it into um, to the, the forearm and the hand in a way that the English doesn't do. And so, of course, as a translator, you're left, well, do we just translate it as hand and then leave everybody slightly scratching their heads going, what on earth is it about? Or do we, do we help them out here and put something forearm? And, and so you see, they're making decisions to go, how, how do we capture the meaning and, and, so that the, and this is more leaning towards what would be the, the dynamic equivalent. And so the NIV would push towards that. And so, so we, have, we have this going on uh, in, in the books that we have, in the apps that we have in our phone. And so we, we should be aware that every translation has an element of translation and interpretation in it. There's no such thing for us as we read these as, you know, some, and there's, there's, maybe there's some good ones, there's some bad translation for sure, but I don't think any of us get to go like, I've got, like you should be reading mine. Like, I know you're reading that, you should really be reading my version. There's just a wee bit of humility here to say, look, 
there's things going on here and there's scholarly work behind them all. Um, and yeah, and we'll say no more about calfskin and goatskin stuff because that's just sinful. I'm joking, I'm joking, it's not sin. So, there's, so why, why is there so many different versions? It's because of that. But here's the question where we need to start to, just to lean into, and we're going to just begin by putting some foundational things in this question today, and then to, next week is to kind of unpack that all the more and get to some of those awkward examples that just make us go like, ah, you see contradiction, and we're going to have, I was going to say fun, but that's probably not true. We'll have a bit of uh, exploration of uh, this, but this is the final question I want to to get at today. It was, well, so how, how should we read it then? If Just trying to take in so far what you're saying. And um, I, I want to start with, uh, with, a, with a, maybe a bit of what not to do and then a, a couple of things of what uh, we might do as our foundation as we answer the, that question. There's a, there's a guy called uh, Scott McKnight. He talks uh, in sort of uh, he uses the example of an abtronic uh, trainer thing and talks about shortcuts we should avoid. And here's his, his shortcuts. So you know the ab tra- his, his point is, you know those ab trainers, you go to the, you're trying to get fit and you know, your six pack and, uh, and so you sit there and watch the TV and you put on your ab tra- I don't know, if, you don't need to tell me you've done it, but if you've done it, I'd be interested to know if it works. But um, it's like, there's no shortcuts to good abs. It's diet and it's like sit-ups and it's running and it's gym and whatever else you do to get you know, rock-hard abs. Um, and he used that as an analogy to say, look, actually, there's, let's not have shortcuts. There's shortcuts we use to try and get the results we want. And let's not have sort of abtronic shortcuts when it comes to the way we read the Bible. Now, I will say as we go through this, there are ways where there's good ways to take, there, there's truth in all of these, right? So don't feel like I've just like taken the rug from under your feet and your whole life's ruined. But anyway, here we go. So he would say, here's some, some of the ways we, we uh, shortcut and read the Bible slightly uh, incomplete. And one is to see it just as uh, in morsels of law, like because there's so many commandments in the Bible, and there are, and there's, there's aspects of the Bible that is more technically what we'd say law, is to read the whole thing as some sort of rules. It's just like everywhere you turn, you just see things as, as basically timeless truths that just need principles applied, that just needs things put into place. And for every problem that we have, there is a, a, a rule and a law in it. And to refer to it uh, primarily as just on a basic level of right or wrong. The other way is to read it as a shortcut, as like morsels of blessing. Um, so this is kind of getting at in the, I think it's the 15th century. Somebody will confirm that later in Google. But there's a guy, Stephanus, who, who got the, the Bible and put a number and verses. And before that, it was just read as a whole, uh, which probably has a result in why, you know, your fridge magnet will have, you know, the blessings of, you know, Psalm 23, verse 1 on the Monday and Jeremiah 29:11 on the Tuesday. And... And all these warm, comforting things that just are there to lift you, like just little goodies, if you like, to, to lift you and just to, to keep your life on track. And what you'll never find in the front of the fridge is, and God wiped out all the Egyptians. And if you have that in your fridge, you're, you're slightly weird. But anyway, <laughs> you don't get it, do you? Um, 
And of course, they're, they're, we should have a handle on the goodness and the promises of God. They're, they're so confident and real, and we send them in cards. That's all still up for grabs. But you see the problem if that's the primary way or only way we relate to the Bible is little snippets of things that just, oh, that'll do for that situation, and oh, that makes me feel better about myself or that situation. And it's a shortcut. It's a morsel of blessing. The mirror thing is just quite straightforwardly. We read into it what we want. This is probably the itch in the ears of Second Timothy. <laughs> we, you know, it's just literally, I, I see in this text what I want to see. And oh, I didn't notice that thing over there, but I'm not going to look. I'm just, you know, it's just that we, we read into it what we want to hear. The jigsaw piece he, he's getting at is, is more about actually, it's a puzzle to be solved and rearranged and then put back together. And once you've kind of got the put back together, you don't need to worry about some of the details of the story. So this could be the, maybe the systematic or systematician approach. He's really got his doctrine nailed down and now no longer really just refers to the text, but doesn't need to really examine the text because they're now, the, the sin in that is, I'm an expert. <laughs> I've rearranged it, I've tidied it up, I've got at it quicker, I've solved the puzzle. And, and I'm now reading it a bit smarter than it. And of course, the danger in that is actually you, you just forget to read it and allow some of the rugged edges of the text just to come up and remind you that you're not an expert and to remind you that, um, of something that you don't want to see. And it's another shortcut. And then finally, the one the maestros is just, I think it was more referring to his personal journey of you know, we see maestros in the Bible like Paul. And for him, he gives the example of, Paul was my maestro. I read Jesus, and then I went to Paul to explain Jesus to me. And the, the danger of just taking somebody who is hero and getting it out of order, and then that interpreting somebody like Jesus and putting things at odds. And we need to avoid that sort of thinking. And even, even if you start to just to put an awareness of your, as, as we read the scriptures together, even I think just an awareness of this would start to cultivate something of, a, of the spirit of what I think we're, we should go after, which is to say of something maybe with concern, care. So if that's not how, if that's in some ways not primarily how we should read the Bible, what would give us a really strong foundation? And one, uh, two ideas. The first one is this. We read the Bible as a unified story that leads us to Jesus. That leads us to, if you like, the redemption, the rescue we find in King Jesus. We, I would point, if I was to ground that, I would point it to texts like this. Listen to these words from Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through him, he also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Luke 24 as well, I point you to another place to ground that way of listening. This becomes our way of reading the scriptures as a unified story that leads us to Jesus. Luke 24 is a brilliant 
account of two disciples post-resurrection of Jesus. And the rumors were out he's, he had appeared and, and the, the women, as it referred to, had, had seen him and stuff like that. And there's just two disciples on the Emmaus Road who, who meet the, the risen Christ. And they, 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 the risen Christ yet to be discovered until they break bread and realizes, they realize at that point it's Jesus, which is interesting. But he... He, he begins, and it says in verse 27, in Luke chapter 24, and the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, I've read some commentaries in my time. I, I can't imagine what it would like to sit with Jesus as a commentary of the whole Bible, beginning with Moses and the prophets, and to say, all of this was about me. All of this was about me and who I am and what I was doing. And I think we know this, just to assure you, in case you're thinking, I, don't, I think we know this and do this already, largely effectively. It's a wee bit like driving. Do you know, if you went back to doing your driving lessons, you probably would pick up a number of things that would help you drive better. But most of us, most, can get from A to B without any problem. So not, we're probably doing all right. But, and, and I think we know this too already, and I think a clue is this. You'll, we often will say, there's a, the reason why we'll say seven words, that was then and this is now. When we do stuff like that, there's a reason why there's parts of the Bible point to the law, or, or as the most obvious some of the ceremonial law. There's a reason why we say that was then and, and this is now. It, it, and it's not undermining lack of confidence in the Bible and some we don't like it. It's because we are learning and we have discerned that actually there is a pattern of discernment that says actually there's a progressive revelation that takes us to Jesus. And in light of what we know about Jesus, we now look at the Old Testament, we look at different aspects, we look at everything through this revelation of what Jesus came to do. Now we don't rub out the details, but we look at everything he's done and make sense of it out of light of what he has done and who he is. And so when we say, yeah, but that was then and this is now, that is, it can be a get out. But most of the time, maybe that is us saying, actually, we do this. We read this in, in light of Jesus, this unified story that takes us to Jesus. Now, one of the, you could divvy the story up into a plot in, in lots of different ways. This is probably one of my favorite, I think, helpful, most clear, is the idea of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration as a bit of a plot to keep us on track. But it's this idea that we, we read it as a story which starts to get us down the right track when it comes to ordering a conversation and ordering our reading of Scripture. But if we stop there, our foundations will still need more, even for just one single sermon like this today. Because I think we read the Bible well when we read it as a unified story about Jesus. But I think we also need to read the Bible, we also read the Bible well when we remember its end. And that's where 2 Timothy 3 picks up this reality um, that we've heard read out before, that there is a, a, a point, a goal, a purpose, if you like, of us reading it. Uh, that's really, really important to keep in mind if we're to have a conversation, if we're to use the scriptures in the most godly way there is a point. And 2 Timothy captures this, and I'm going to use 1 John to just ground it as well. 
It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The scriptures are given so that we can be formed into a particular way of relating to God and being with him and living. They're, they're, they're formed to, to move us, to move our character. They're formed to move us um, to, to live in a particular way with God. 1 John 1, verse 1 to 4, just has this idea. It, it rehearses the incarnation, and it goes through this lovely description of, of, of the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it to testify, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. That might sound it. You stated the absolute obvious. Absolutely. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody who's just, their goal is to win it and felt the difference in the conversation? Probably, you probably even got, felt intimidated or nervous or, you know, like, if, if the goal is to win it, to use it to, you know, you, you get how the conversation gets disordered. But if the goal is to have fellowship, to live well, and it, it, it creates a different conversation. And we, we really, really need to keep the end goal of, of what Scripture has given us for, to help us to love God well. And there's specifics now. And there's help us to love our neighbor uh, 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 as ourselves. And so, um, if you wanted it slightly more technically, John Webster, who sadly passed away, was uh, one of the leading theologians of, of modern times. He, he, he just brings it together like this, just to reinforce this point. Look, the end of this is fellowship. Listen to what he says. Revelation is the self-presentation of the triune God, the free work of his sovereign mercy. Just think about that for a thing. Like, he didn't have to. He wants to. You can't figure him out, but he has revealed himself because of his freedom and sovereignty. He wants to make himself known and has done in particular times, in particular ways, with particular people. And we've got this Bible to say this is what he's done and he can be experienced. Revelation is the self-presentation of the triune God, the free work of sovereign mercy in which God wills, establishes and perfects saving fellowship with himself in which humankind comes to know, love, and fear him above all things. How we need to hold that, the goal of loving him with all our hearts, loving each other. Do you know, I, on a really simple level, I, I, I wor- and I'm not, I'm not going to serve in any spectrum, I, I really worry about any interaction with the Bible, it has none of this. You know, these words like teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteous equipping. If the Bible doesn't do anything for us, you might know a lot, but you're, you're not reading it. You're not reading it well. You're not reading it to the end, the goal that what God has revealed himself for. And it's easy done. And it's terrifying, and it's, it's very human, but... We need, to, we need to remember that saving fellowship that is the end game when it comes to reading the Bible. I, I said this at Christmas um, at the something or other service, the, uh, the 
the book that captures the carol service, sorry, the something or other service, what on earth is that? It's our new service we do here. It, it, was, it compares uh, like doctrines and beliefs as bricks versus springs, and he, the, the coins of phrase is brickianity, and obviously bricks just sound like such rigid wall-like structures, and the springs were like springs of a trampoline that help us to live and experience and you know, soar if you will, is a comparison of brickianity versus the springs. Do you know, there's, there's just something, I think, to keep in this conversation of all the things we explore, the end game of actually, this is not to build defense-like structures. This is to help us to love God with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and to love other people well. And that does mean we do, in a culture that has itch in the ears, which does what it wants, we do it in it from a di- very different place, but with, with hearts that want that. And um, before, just to finish, if you wanted to start to read deeply more widely, I could point you to uh, a, a number of resources that are up there. The slides, will, I think, will be sent out midweek, but just ones that capture a bit of the, 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 the breadth of what we've kind of just um, tiptoed uh, around this morning, but more than anything else, I want to finish with, Lord, would, would this be our prayer? I, I absolutely loved that idea on the Emmaus Road, that, the, that those two disciples, unnamed disciples, just, it doesn't matter who they are, maybe it just, does that just tell us, it's just something so ordinary, accessible, that Jesus, when he revealed the scriptures, that they're all about him, there's just something about the scriptures that says there's like a fire burning inside of them when he talked to us and we started to, to see and make sense and experience of who he is. And two ordinary people, not the scholars, not the experts, two ordinary people with Jesus and their hearts were on fire because they experienced something of the living God. And that is... May that be our hope and, and our prayer. Last night, I was, um, I was losing the plot slightly, as I no- normally do when it comes to getting three boys at bedtime. And uh, one of the usual games that we have to avoid are, are, is the, when Seb is going down to sleep, the other two need to stay quiet. It just kind of makes sense, right? And, and of course, Max was, uh, no, of course, sorry, I love Max. Max was kicking off a little bit. And uh, at the top stairs being noisy, and he was shouting to some dad, dad, the top stairs. And I, was, I just went up to him, and I was like, what are you doing? And I was like, can I read the Bible? <laughs> and, I <was> like, <laughs> and I was just like, I was so taken aback, because that's so not a normal conversation in our house. I carry so much shame for that. But anyway, uh, and he was so genuine. He was just, can I read the, could we have been doing this thing, this game of the Bible for the last couple of nights? And he's, and I was just like, yeah, do you know, just a basic desire and request to learn and experience and know. And it just, it just pulled me up. There's something powerful here that it's not just for the experts. You don't have to memorize everything I just said. For people like us who could just come and gather around God's word, may our hearts be burning like fire when we just come with a basic hunger. That's what Jacqueline read that psalm, Psalm 119. Give me understanding so I may keep your law and, and direct me in the path of your commands. For there I find a rule book. I, I find delight in the presence of the one who loves me eternally and perfectly. A basic hunger, a basic need for God to reveal himself, and more than a basic reverence and awe that Jesus comes near through his word in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that begins 
us down the right sort of conversations, we say, if we keep that, um, may God's spirit blow through this place. Let's pray together. Father, I guess we just want to confess our, our need of you, our, our need of your wisdom. And um, would you give us an awaken the right desire for your word, how we experience you in the Bible, God. May you move it out of the category of like, oh, oughts and shoulds, and move it out of the category of like something that's almost used as a rigid defense-like structure that's to swipe people down. And would you make us more like the psalmist who just delights in, in your revelation of who you are to help us to, to read well so that we can live well for you? And for those, anybody this morning who feels like a hundred bazillion miles away from you, may, may your spirit and your word come and say, God is near. God can be experienced. That we don't have to be left in mystery, like who is God, what is God life, but we have this revelation of who he is and what he's about, that we don't have to be stuck in our troubles, that you have come and you've revealed who you are and you're the God who speaks, the God who has spoken and the God who speaks. And you can speak to somebody like me, somebody like Max, somebody like the two unnamed disciples. God, you speak and you transform. If we're not hungry, God, would you make us hungry for more of you, we pray for your glory.